0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Day three of the Capital Weekly Podcast. This is uh, John Howard and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Bob Stern the principal co-author, co-author of the Political Reform Act and the first general counsel of the Fair Political Practices Commission. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for chatting with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You know, the, the, the proximate trigger for wanting you to talk was the behested payments issue. I know we chatted a little bit about that before, but um, it seems to be coming around again. This issue is coming around. What what are your thoughts on behested payments, and
2: how significant are they in terms of the political campaign landscape? You know, JOHN when I first uh, started r- writing the Political Reform Act back in 1973, there was no such thing as behested payments. We had never heard of anything like that. We were mainly concerned about disclosure of campaign contributions, uh, disclosure of investments, income, uh, interest in real property, and so forth. Um, well, one thing we did in the political reform mm. act when we wrote it, we were one of the first uh, initiatives to do this was to allow the legislature to amend the act uh, with a two thirds vote and provided the bill was in print for a certain number of days because we knew there would be changes uh, by uh, elected officials, uh, politicians and so forth. And we didn't wanna lock the political reform act in stone. And that was a very wise decision since we now see these behested payments which are basically payments uh, solicited by uh, state officials or local officials to go not to themselves, not to their own committees, but to charities that sometimes they control and sometimes they just have a major influence over. And what they do is oftentimes they will go to a big interest that they'll want to curry favor with them and say, you know, don't give to my campaign committee. I'm not in any trouble in ter- terms of running for re-election. Uh, Don't give me any income, because if you do that, I might have to disqualify myself. Why don't you give to my favorite charity that uh, I like a lot? Uh, And you can give unlimited amounts, and I don't have to disclose it uh, until the legislature decided to close that loophole and require disclosure at $5,000 or more, as opposed to disclosure of campaign contributions of $100 or more. So what we're seeing is a major shift uh, in terms of how uh, uh, elected officials and other officials are raising money not just campaign money anymore, but money for charities, money for legal defense funds, uh, money for uh, ballot measure committees, uh, and ways to uh, sort of get around the campaign disclosure laws and also the disclosure limits by raising unlimited amounts for other organizations. Hey, Bob, if the money doesn't go
1: directly to a uh, to a candidate or an incumbent who's running for reelection, if it doesn't go to that person directly What's wrong with it? What's wrong with a behested
2: payment? I mean, it's legal, clearly, but but it doesn't have a good smell to it. Well, that's right. There's always a question of legality versus ethics. If you go to a uh, a, a company or a union that is uh, uh, has major legislation pending before you, and you say, you know, uh, I, I understand there's legislation that, that you like. Uh, but And I'm not asking you to do anything in exchange for my vote on the legislation, but it sure would be nice if you gave to my favorite charity, particularly a charity that I, uh, I'm on the board of directors of. Why don't you give, say, $50,000 or $75,000 to this charity? Uh, that would make me feel pretty good. Now, if, if you do that to a special interest, the special interest is going to say, you know, we have this legislation here that's worth uh, $100 million. A uh, fifty thousand dollar contribution to a charity that looks really good uh, will will make the public official really happy, and everybody wins, mm-hmm. except the except maybe the public who doesn't like the legislation that the official is voting on. Over the years, the Political Reform Act
1: has been uh, has been amended. I guess would be the word, but I mean there have been changes in the rules regulating campaign donations, campaign contributions. The amount has been changed. Uh, I guess it coincide with inflation to reflect an inflationary spiral. Um, but it seems like no matter what limits people may want to put on campaign spending, it just seems there are ways around it at the end of the day. Money seems to find its way into politics. It just may take a different path. At one point, I remember the parties became very powerful because they, their, their, their ability to, to funnel money and offer donations and limits were removed in many cases, augmented their power, made them stronger than they had been before. Have taken that over time, how our campaign disclosure laws have been
2: affected? Well, that's very true. Uh, and that's why we said that the Political Reform Act should be amended, because we knew that we couldn't anticipate uh, everything. And after all, I, mean, I, I wrote this law with uh, Dan Lowenstein and many others in 1973, and that's 48 years ago, <laughs> I'm kind of amazed that the act has survived this long. Uh, I'm kind of, I remember turning to Dan on the night of the election in June of 1974. And I said, Dan, I'm 30 years old. Uh, is this going to be the highlight of my professional political <laughs> professional career? And Dan said, I don't know. And it turns out at age 30, that was the highlight of my professional career. And, and everything else has been sort of downhill since. But um, and this is right in the Watergate,
1: right? I mean, 74, Nixon resigned three months later,
2: two months later. That's right, and that's one of the reasons why I got 70% of the vote. I think the public was so disgusted. It was was great timing by Jerry Brown in pushing for the political reform act in 1974. (laughs) Uh, It certainly helped him, I think, in terms of his uh, gubernatorial election as well. Yeah. But but getting back to what you're saying, part of the problem is, and and I've been thinking about this more and more lately, is the fact that the United States Supreme Court has allowed for an awful lot of this, what I would call unethical behavior uh, and allowing it to be, uh, to, not to be regulated. For example, the United States Supreme Court had said that you can't limit how much money a candidate can spend on his or her election. You can't limit a, a, a how much a ballot measure can spend or even raise in terms of campaign contributions. And the court even recently said that you have to have a the, the official has to t- take an official action uh, before money given to the official is considered to be bribery. So what I see is the fact that we had very good intentions in 1974. We wrote a lot of good things in there, some of which was declared unconstitutional by the court. The, for example, the contribution uh, uh, expenditure limits. But one thing the court so far has allowed is disclosure. Although Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has, has said he thinks disclosure is a violation of the First Amendment, and so we might have to see with these new Supreme Court justices what happens to disclosure. So uh-huh. we do have we do have disclosure, but we are unable to limit how much money is coming in, how much money is being raised, uh, except for money given directly to a candidate's own uh, campaign committee. So part of it is not the fact that we can't come up with solutions; is the fact that the Supreme Court, in my mind, has, has taken the First Amendment way too far and made these solutions unconstitutional.
1: So there's no limit on money, on the amount of money a candidate can spend. But there are limits on how much an individual donor can give to, can give to a candidate in any given election cycle, state and federal. So I guess if they if they have a wide if a candidate has spread a wide enough net. And get whatever money he can he can raise, he or she can raise, and then spend whatever they want. But individually, uh, campaign contributors are limited, aren't they?
2: They are limited, but they are not limited to super PACs. They're not limited to uh, committees controlled by the candidate for ballot measure. I see. Or if the candidate wants to run for statewide office, they can uh, raise uh, huge amounts of money. And the limits in California are much higher than the federal limits. But what we've seen, I, I mean, I believe in contribution limits, but the contribution limits have been really, uh, they, they, they've been limited in a sense by by court decisions. And then you have these behested payments, you have these other funds the candidates are raising money for that are unlimited, and all we have is disclosure. I had thought, John, uh, when, we, uh, when the act was passed in 1974 by 70% of the voters, that the disclosure that would come in would so offend the voters that eventually they would go for public financing of campaigns and say, you know, this is just ridiculous. People who are coming before the legislature or the city council shouldn't be giving campaign money at the same time that uh, the officials are are deciding on legislation affecting those persons giving campaign money. Yeah, But mm-hmm. the court decision in 1976, and it was a 1976 decision that really started, this Buckley versus Vallejo, said you couldn't require public financing for all candidates. The candidate wanted to turn it down and raise um, – uh, and spend unlimited amounts of money, you couldn't require candidates to accept public financing. And then what we found is even those jurisdictions that have adopted public financing, like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York City, uh, and we even had it at the federal level for, until President Obama turned it down in, in 2008, even those uh, laws, uh, what we found was that um, candidates were, were, were uh, still able to raise lots of money from special interests Uh, Despite the public financing. In fact, we had one instance where we had uh, in Los Angeles a candidate who got public financing and who's told us uh, that they would not have uh, won the election without public financing. And we said, terrific. That means the system worked. Well, the next election, she didn't accept the public financing. And we said, why not? She said, because I could raise more money without it. Uh, So the public financing Mm -hmm. has not been the solution, the panacea that I thought it would be partly because of these behested payments, partly because of officeholder funds uh, and and other ways the candidates have been raising uh, unlimited amounts of money uh, despite the uh, contribution limits for their own personal campaigns.
1: You know, the independent expenditure committees, we've seen um, they've grown exponentially over the last few years in California and more money is going through them. But my question was always, are they really independent? Someone who supports a particular candidate gives a ton of no. To an IE, I can't help but think there's a wink and a nod how the money is going to be spent. Just how would you ever know that it's truly
2: independent? Are there ways of assuring that an IE really is independent? Well, and again, that's a Supreme Court decision allowing unlimited independent expenditures. Which I, I no, I, I obviously uh, respect the decisions. And and I won't write legislation that's unconstitutional, given the Supreme Court decision, but I don't have to agree with the decision. And that was another decision as part of Buckley versus Valeo, by the way, written by Justice Brennan, although he didn't sign the opinion. And Justice Brennan later formed a school or a a, a program at the New York University, NYU, trying to uh, uh, changed the uh, and, and challenged the opinion he had written in 1976, which he thought that he had written it incorrectly, I think. So, again, it's a 1976 decision, Buckley versus Leo, that is causing many, and many of the problems. Um, we have Citizens United as well. So, uh, yeah, the, the problem is independent expenditures. And how are they independent? I think in most cases, John, they are independent. But with disclosure, if uh, an oil company gives $75,000 to the Independent Expenditure Committee and um, the uh, committee uh, is is going to decide whether or not to oppose a certain legislator, the legislator knows that the oil company is yeah. given to the Independent Expenditure Committee and and might be hesitant to to vote against uh, something the oil company wanted, or more, actually probably more relevant today, a labor union. Uh, labor unions uh, have a huge, as you know, huge influence over the California legislature. And if a labor union says, you know, it announces, for example, we're going to have an independent expenditure campaign against Bob Stern because uh, he's uh, anti union, <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to know that and I'm going to be very careful about how I vote.
0: Hey, Bob. So, can you do you have any sense of how this compares to how other countries control uh, their campaign financing? Of, of elections, uh, I mean, we're obviously not the only democracy in the world. Uh, how does how does this compare to the standard worldwide?
2: Well, Tim, we're the Wild West because of the First Amendment and the Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment, the, the freedom of speech uh, part of the First Amendment. Uh, other jurisdictions don't have that. So uh, Canada, there are many more, in fact, there are restrictions on expenditures in Canada, for example, uh, and other jurisdictions have... Uh, completely different elections in terms of parliamentary elections, much smaller uh, uh, elections in terms of the uh, size of the districts. So, yeah, we're we're a complete outlier in this uh, and countries look at us in just amazement at, how, could, how can you have all this money flowing from people who want something from government and, and you expect the public officials not to pay attention to what they want? Um, and in other jurisdictions, they give free TV time to candidates um, public financing to candidates. Candidates have to accept the public financing. Of course, in England, the elections are much uh, shorter. I'm not sure I support that. But, uh, you know, if, if, if we step back for a moment, I was thinking how, how um, everybody reveres our Constitution. Um, and I know that uh, Justice Stephen Breyer carries around a copy of the Constitution with him. And when you think of some of these constitutional provisions that are really ridiculous, I mean, the Electoral College, for example, some of the presidential uh, selection procedures of the Constitution. Um, the fact that we have uh, two state senators in Wyoming representing 700,000 people, and we have two state, uh, two U.S. senators in California representing 40 million people. Um, we really need to take a look, I think. I mean, I'm in favor, frankly, of a constitutional convention. Take a, take a look. We are the oldest constitution, but we are also the most archaic constitution. And we have a Supreme Court in my mind that is very, very conservative when it comes to uh, a corporate speech, uh, campaign contributions, and is, I think, really out of touch with the American people. Uh, Bob, changing gears for just a second. Um, The uh, Fair Political
1: Practices Commission has a full-time chair and four part-time members. Uh, four part-time commissioners and a full-time commissioner. And this issue came up a couple, three years ago. There was something of a rebellion over there or a fight over there about influence and about the role of the part-time commissioners and how much sway they had in decision-making as it applied to campaign financing. Um, and I saw you got involved in that a bit and it written to the commission. Uh, what's your take on that now? Is the commission settled down or do we still need to maybe have five part-time members or five full-time members. You got any thoughts on that, how
2: it's played out? Yeah, I have thoughts on that. There have been some excellent chairs and there have been some really disastrous chairs. Uh, And I, uh, about maybe a year or two ago, circulated a suggestion that all the members of the commission be part-time and that you have an executive director that is much more powerful than the executive director today. And I circulated among past chairs and you were unanimous in opposition to what I was suggesting. Uh, But California's commission, as far as I know, I don't think there's any other commission in the country where you have the situation where you have a full-time chair and and part-time commissioners. Uh, Certainly LA Ethics Commission, San Francisco Ethics Commission, all the ethics commissions across the country are all either, well, other than the Federal Election Commission, which has six full-time people I think yeah. they're all part-time people, giving the executive director uh, more more power. In LA, the executive director uh, has a 10-year term limit, so that makes sure that they, they, they uh, sort of rotate the executive directors and, and they don't become sort of the czars. So if I were doing it over again, um, I would certainly have five uh, part-time commissioners. I mean, I think the current chair is doing a fine job, uh, but uh, there have been past chairs that have not done a fine job and then some some great uh uh, full-time chair so it's been a mixed bag but certainly I would do it, the way I would do it again is to model it after LA or San Francisco or or some of the others uh, and, and uh, talking to Ann Ravel uh, she moved from the FPPC in California to the Federal Election Commission and she found a, a tremendous difference obviously at the Federal Election Commission partly because they're they have six members as opposed to an odd number, and they have three Democrats, three Republicans. So if you compare California to, New York, to, to the federal uh, agency, we are, of course, doing much, much better than they are. Uh, but I would change it. Does, does California's
1: size and complexity warrant five full-time members? Should this be a full-time think,
2: panel? I don't think so. I think if they have a, a good staff. Uh, that uh, the uh, part-time commissioners would be fine. But, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to to it if they wanted to go that way. Um, uh, I I guess the Public Utilities Commission is full-time and maybe some of the other agencies are full-time as well. Uh, And if they wanted to do that, that would be fine. But they only meet now, I think, once a month. We were meeting twice a week at the beginning. Uh, It's because we had so much uh, going on. And Dan Lowenstein, who who was an absolutely terrific chair, was actually... Uh, writing regulations from the dais. Uh, it was so uh, so chaotic. <laughs>
1: Do you think there's enough uh, public interest in changing our changing campaign laws now, limiting contributions and political money now as there was during the Watergate era? Or is that an issue that sort of
2: sailed? One on person you should talk to is Trent Lang from California Clean Money Committee, who I think is doing a terrific job there in uh-huh. promoting uh, changes. Uh, but his changes are mainly uh, disclosure changes and disclosure changes um, on tv radio and internet ads which i think are really the the way to let the public know who is trying to influence the elections as opposed to the campaign statements that very few of us will go look at at the secretary of state's uh, website is there if you put on there uh, a, a proposition that there should be no campaign contributions going to politicians that would pass overwhelmingly but of course it would be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, so why uh-huh. do it? Yeah. So I think the the public at this point has a very, very low opinion of uh, elected officials, of government officials uh, for a variety of reasons and would, would support almost any restriction. For example, if you put on there that no elected official should be paid a, more than a dollar, that would pass overwhelmingly too. I wouldn't support something like that, but uh, the public has such a low opinion that almost any reform I think could pass the big problem would be uh, whether it was constitutional or not.
1: Yeah. Hey, Bob, one last question. What do you think the uh, next step should be uh, in the legislature or the gov- action the governor can take? But what should the next step be to get at this issue of too much money in politics? Is there anything the state can do to get the ball rolling on that?
2: Well, again, I would be looking to the uh, California Clean Money Committee for their recommendations in terms of more disclosure. Uh, on on ads. But the problem is you don't get disclosure of behested payments and you don't get disclosure of uh, contributions going to uh, future committees. So the problem is that we have all this money coming in to elect officials uh, who control various entities that we will know about if we go to the Secretary of State's website, perhaps, but that's about it. Um, and uh, this, the the public is so jaded at this point that they expect all this money coming in, and there's there's not too much outrage when it comes in, except when the official is prosecuted, and we've seen some prosecutions down here in Los Angeles with the city council. Uh, the problem is that you have a, a difference between sort of ethical standards and criminal standards, and the only time people get really outraged is when there's somebody is uh, is criminally prosecuted, And one more thing, John, and that is that the only time the public really, really gets uh, outraged is when the chief executive is involved in a scandal. Uh, So you had uh, President Nixon involved, uh, obviously, in the Watergate scandal, and we had many reforms down here in Los Angeles. We had Mayor Bradley involved in a scandal, and we had reforms here in Los Angeles. Now, the problem is that President Trump has been involved in so many scandals. Uh, and what we see is that the uh, the public is so divided between uh, the parties that it's unlikely that we will get anything through without a change in the filibuster rules of, of the of the Senate. So I am not optimistic about future reforms, mainly because we're so divided uh, right now that we're not going to get a consensus between the parties. Great. Bob Cern.
1: thank you so much. Thanks for chatting with us today. Tim, did you have anything you wanted to add?
0: Okay. I well uh, no, um, was on mute. Um, oh, I'm ashamed <laughs> all the millennials right now are just so embarrassed for me. Um, but uh, No, I think we're good. I, I
2: enjoyed all your questions. I enjoyed being able to pontificate a little bit and, and start thinking about uh, about this whole subject again. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and go back to your tennis now. It's okay.
0: All right, off we go. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Yep. Bye. take care. So, John, are you ready to do uh, our Worst Week section? Uh, Sure. The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week.
1: Uh, Yeah, I guess uh, I think we have a worthy candidate, although not perhaps somebody not with a statewide profile, but Nitha Rahman, who's a member of the L.A. City Council. She's a one-term member, she knocked off a veteran incumbent, but uh, the redistricting commission down there has gotten involved and it looks like about three quarters of her current district, which includes parts of Silver Lake downtown, um, inner city area, Miracle Mile, uh, will be going out to San Fernando Valley and the Shadow Hills. And it looks like she's going to be threatened uh, faces a daunting election.
0: Yeah, I'm I understand. going to be representing Bakersfield. It's very difficult redistricting. So I don't know what's going to happen, but she clearly uh,
1: had her political world turned upside down. I think her communications director said this is really an attempt. She was quoted in a LA magazine, really an attempt to, to invalidate a legitimate election. And it certainly seems like that to us from here. Jimmy, you got any thoughts?
0: Uh, no, I just, and I do want to thank uh, Rob Crinky. Uh, of Grassroots Labs, uh, who for bringing this to our attention, I would have missed this one actually. But yes, I, I think she definitely did not have a good week. Yeah. Okay, then. There you
1: have it. Tim Foster, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying thank you very
0: much, uh, listeners, and we will catch you next time around. The Capital Weekly podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.